Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello and welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton. Not joining me today, my my friend, my neighbor, my my frenemy, my op, Mr. Daly, and that's because his mystery business trip continues. I promise you he'll be back before the end of the season. But in the meantime, we have a very, very, very special guest, somebody that I've been teasing for weeks and weeks. Megan Schuster from The Ringer is back on the Scuderia F1 podcast. Megan, how the heck are you? I'm so good. Thanks for having me back. Very excited to be here. We're very excited to have you. And for people that don't know you, and you've been on the show before, we've had the pleasure of joining you on your show, maybe share a little bit about your background and share some things that people would find interesting about you. Yeah, so I'm an editor with The Ringer, theringer.com, if you've ever heard of it, uh, a great website, as we like to say. Uh, I am also the host now of The Ringer F1 show, which has been a very, very fun adventure that I've gotten to be a part of over the last couple of Formula One seasons. Uh Personally, I am from Minnesota and live there now, which is a great place to be. If you ever feel like visiting, uh, come during the summer would be what I encourage you to do. <laughs> um, yeah. And other than that, it's just been really fun being on the F1 wave the last few years. That's awesome. And that's exactly the way I wanted to say, kind of segue this. But how are things generally at The Ringer? And you know, let's back this up a little bit, because I think a lot of our listeners are probably familiar with the with Grantland and the Ringer because I certainly talk about it and reference it quite often. And stylistically, we've borrowed pretty heavily from a lot of Ringer podcasts, but maybe kind of expand on what the Ringer is and kind of what the mission statement is and what kind of content is generated over there because you do everything from covering Formula One and covering golf to doing some really great pop culture stuff. And I think earlier this summer, you had published an article with, I think, Miles Surrey, which was the definitive ranking of movie monsters. <laughs> so there's a ton of stuff happening over there. Yeah, the Ringer is a, a very, very fun place to work. Um, if you are not familiar with it, it's a website, podcast network, video network that covers sports, pop culture, and everything in between. Um, it, it's a great place to work for me because I get to have my hands in a lot of different projects. My day-to-day -day life is as an editor, so I get to work with our wonderful NFL writers and some pop culture writers. Um, and then, yeah, like you said, I also get to write about golf when majors happen and other big life events in golf, which has been happening a lot over the last couple of years. Uh, I get to do some pop culture work. Uh, Miles and I have done a lot of rankings over the years. So if you're ever interested in some very silly pop culture rankings, I think we've done like tigers, bears, like you said, movie monsters, anytime that there's a <laughs> random opportunity for us to do a weird out of left field ranking, we like to take it. Um, 
sort of the most fun things I get to do at my job. Uh, but yeah, it's just a, it's a really fun time and things, yeah, things are going well over there. Megan, am I breaking any rules of consumption that whenever I see a rankings on the ringer, I always scroll to the, because you, you typically start at like 30, 29, 28, 27. Sure. I always scroll straight to the bottom because I immediately <laughs> need to see who's number one. And then I work backwards. Is there a right way or a wrong way to consume rankings lists? I, I don't think so. I, I'm like you, I, I don't have a whole lot of patience. So, you know, when I'm when I'm reading other websites rankings, you know, if, if Rolling Stone is doing a ranking of Taylor Swift songs or whatever, um, I, I too like to see if I think that they got the top of the list right. And then that, you know, lends me a little bit more credibility to kind of scroll back through and say, okay, let's see like what their midfield tier is and things like that. Um, yeah, Miles and I like to start from the bottom when we write these rankings just to sort of get the fun and, and sillier ones out of the way before we have to actually contextualize what the top of the list looks like and why we have it at the top. But uh, I, I don't think there's a right or a wrong way. I think a lot of people, you know, whether it's power rankings in the NFL or something, they like to go through and see like where their heart is within the rankings and kind of go from there. So I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I fully support anyone's, anyone's rankings, readings habit. I certainly hope and, and wish that one day I will click on the ringer.com and see the definitive rankings of movie vampires. Oh. That's something that I hold near and dear to my heart. I would, I would love to see how you slice and dice that because in the last 20 years, there have been many vampire. That's interesting. I think that, isn't there like a Nosferatu movie coming out soon, or maybe it already came out recently? There is, yeah. Um, um, yeah, maybe Miles and I should get on that next if we have a have the right peg for it. We're we're always looking for our next project, so that's that's a good one to identify. I love that. By the way, you alluded earlier in the show to the fact that you are now rocking the Ringer F1 Show podcast, which I think launched early in 2022. Uh, so first of all, huge shout out. You've had that show on lock all year and been doing a phenomenal job. And it's clearly become a staple of the F1 podcast ecosystem. But I have a couple of questions for you about that because I, I think in my experience, people who consume F1 related content are sometimes different in their expectations and their needs and their wants of people that consume other types of sports media like basketball and, and golf and things like that. What are some of the things that you've learned about producing content for F1 fans and how does maybe that differ from creating content for fans of other sports? Yeah, it, it's been a really fun ride over the last couple of years and I would be remiss if I didn't shout out uh, Kevin Clark, the former host of the show and someone that I got yeah. to work with very closely on it. Uh, he is off doing wonderful things now at ESPN, very missed on the show by me and by everyone, I'm sure. But um, yeah, as far as your question goes, I, I feel like there's a lot about Formula One content that is sort of similar in a way to other sports. And that's, you know, the fact that fans will always want a few things from sports. They want compelling characters. They want narrative storylines that are, you know, interesting and exciting to follow. And they want drama. And F1, fortunately, has all of those things in spades, which I think is why <laughs> Drive to Survive became such a phenomenon in the U.S., namely because of the drama. But the big difference for me has been trying to juggle kind of like that interpersonal piece with also the mechanical piece of Formula One, um, you know, car and car developments being as important as they are to the sport and sort of trying to figure out from my perspective, I was a journalism major. So the whole science engineering piece of that math piece of that is uh, way above my pay grade. So 
for me, it's been spending a lot of time trying to figure out how I can kind of understand and distill some of that knowledge and then how to sort of relay that to people who are like me in a way who maybe don't have all of the background in Formula One as to, you know, why certain car developments are so important or why, you know, last week, why the tires were degrading in the ways that they were because of high frequency, whatever, between the curbs and the inner workings of the wall of the tire. And, you know, it's just sort of all over the place. But that's sort of been the biggest, um, I think, challenge for me is trying to find ways to make that both interesting and make it easily understandable to an audience that maybe doesn't have, you know, Adrian Newey's background in in how to construct a car. That's such an interesting perspective. And, and I was kind of curious about that because I think some podcasts do a really great job of catering to that very advanced technical crowd, mm-hmm. which definitely isn't our audience. If they were, they've moved on by now. And then there's <laughs> other podcasts that have to support that middle ground, which is the casual fan and you don't want to alienate them. But you also don't want to turn off the folks that have a little bit more technical um, kind of understanding of the sport. And I would say the other thing that we've learned over the years is one, we, we try to be as, I would say, as middle of the road as possible in terms of showing bias. But one of the things that I really struggle with is when I watch the NBA and I watch Major League Baseball and MLS, like there could be a bad call from a referee or there could be um, a play that is kind of in the gray area. But what I really struggle with, and I, I always flash back to Silverstone in 2021 when Lewis and Max came together mm-hmm. at COPS mm-hmm. and the the sheer amount of debate and anxiety over that and that the interpretation of the rules, like the rules themselves are sometimes so difficult to right. interpret that it creates this lack of consensus and it creates this kind of division within the sport. So if it's a clean race, if it's a clean debate about a driver, a contract, like I'm pretty good with that, but I still struggle in moments like that because like, you know what, sometimes my bias leads me in one direction, but yeah, it can be, it can be challenging. And I think the rules in F1 make it very difficult to be a, a, a content producer because sometimes you have to show bias or you unintentionally show bias, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I do. And that's something that, you know, as someone who's relatively newer to F1 fandom personally, uh, it's something that I've been trying to sort through too, because you'll watch a race and maybe, you know, I feel that, oh, you know, it seemed like so-and-so just really had nowhere to go. And and I feel like yeah, they were in the totally, race for what totally. they did. But then, you know, per the rules of F1, if so, if the other driver involved is like, ahead they sort of have the right of way to the corner and and you know so maybe by the letter of the law something was legal or or so and so should get the benefit of the doubt but for me it looks like okay this other person got squeezed and what other option did they have and um it it is a bit kind of stressful trying to parse that in real time but i also think that's where some of the most fun sports debates come up is because you get to have these um you know heated hopefully uh productive discussions about this stuff on on podcasts or you know in writing or video or wherever um and and that's what i love i love you know getting to everyone sharing their opinion and kind of trying to find what the what the true middle ground is hopefully i totally totally agree with that the next question i've got for you is this one and i i don't know I don't know if you've picked up on this, and I'm really curious about your answer because you're in the U.S., so you're basically 
in the the center of where this F1, I, I don't want to call it a bubble because it might very well be sustainable, but you've been in the the center of the heartland for this boom in, in F1 popularity. But recently, Buzz Radar, a publication I've never heard of before, <laughs> released a, a pretty striking report indicating that interest in F1, as measured by social media engagement, um, has declined this year. Uh, if the data is to be believed, so if you look at that, and F1, by the way, did come out and they shared some data points that said, hey, this isn't true, that social, engage, social media engagement is still very, very strong. But if you were to if you were to believe that hey interest in F1 here in 2023 has declined what do you associate this dip in engagement with after really two years maybe even three years when you go back to the beginning of 2020 and COVID what would you kind of attribute this decline in interest to yeah like you said social media is is a bit of a hard gauge to judge things by I, and I think this season especially when we have sort of a runaway leader, um, there hasn't really been like this silly season move, movement like we got last year. Like I imagine Oscar Piastri's tweet alone last year uh, about <laughs> about uh, his his future prospects and where he was going, and uh, and also probably Fernando Alonso posting about his summer break in Spain while apparently not fielding phone calls from Alpine. I I would think that those uh, those pieces of social media content probably generated quite a bit of engagement. So maybe the year over year there is oh my gosh, totally thrown totally. off just a little bit without uh, much movement on the driver market front. Um, but I, I'm really trying to hope that this is just kind of an ebb and flow situation. Um, 2021 was such a season outlier in that we had multiple ultra competitive race cars and multiple drivers who were capable of winning a championship. Um, and every race as a result became appointment viewing because you never knew, you know, who was going to take the lead in the driver's championship. If, you know, Max was going to collide with Lewis and throw a tire over his head and, you know, who, who knows what's happening there. Um, but that's just like not totally normal in Formula One. And that's something that I've been trying to kind of work my way through is that for a lot of people, their first introduction to the sport was through the drama of Drive to Survive. And then the first season where they're watching every race is the season when every race you do have to watch because you never know what's going to happen. So I, I don't think that we're at a point where F1 should be trying to like manufacture any sort of additional drama. I think that comes across probably more gimmicky to fans than anything else. Although <laughs> I do wish F1 had a lever that I could pull a few times a year where maybe they just randomly start spraying water onto the track and, and create a little bit of drama in an otherwise dull race. But I really am hoping that it just sort of, returns to the median next year maybe red bull has somebody in the second seat that can be a little bit more competitive and maybe give max a run for his money or you know mercedes or aston martin or whoever is able to develop the car over the off season and and try to at least in the beginning half of the season um be a little more competitive but i think this is just something we're riding out at the moment and hopefully it will all kind of even out. I, I totally, I totally hear you. And it is interesting that if you look back at the last couple of years that in 2019, I remember I had your friend Tim Haraney on the podcast, and we were talking even yeah. then about the fact that we felt that F1 was on the cusp of something big. That was the first year that Drive to Survive mm -hmm. came out. And then of course, in 2020, we had the pandemic and everything shut down and we're all we're all stuck inside we're all working from home and then somehow even though the championship wasn't necessarily great in terms of what happened on the track that f1 managed to get a 17 race calendar out was just remarkable that it gave mm -hmm. us something mm -hmm. to watch and of course it it kind of piggybacked yeah. on the fact that people had spent 
two months binging the first two seasons of Drive to Survive, and then and then that <laughs> right. was that was uh, followed by the 2021 championship. And you know, I pe- listeners know that the NBA is my favorite sport, but I followed motorsports forever. And the only the only couple of championships that I can relate 2021 to because let's put aside the outcome in Abu Dhabi like the championship was thrilling was 97 Mm -hmm. when JV and Michael Schumacher went right down to the wire and of course Michael Schumacher punted JV off and was disqualified from the championship Um, the 2015 MotoGP championship between Valentino Rossi and Jorge Lorenzo and 2016 when when of course Nico edged Lewis in in Abu Dhabi but the the difference the difference Megan was I watched those I was thinking about this last night like I watched those championships in a bubble. Like I didn't have anyone to enjoy them with. Sure. In 2021, like everywhere I went, people mm-hmm. like in the mall and on the bus and on the train and at work, like, and I would jump <laughs> on a team's call and people that I would never have imagined would have watched an F1 race were like, did you see what happened to Max and qualified? Like, you know who yeah. Max is? So it was this... It was this thrilling experience that I could, I can enjoy F1 communally. And it was, it was more exciting than I could ever of, I could ever imagine. And like you, I think, I think there's some ebb and flow here that I think there's a fear that maybe F1 is turning off that casual fan, but I think they're maybe still paying attention. They're maybe not consuming as many podcasts and not on as much social media, but I think there's still some pieces here. And it's funny that you mentioned as well, you mentioned Oscar Piastri and Fernando Alonso. The single best numbers our show did all of last year wasn't preseason. It wasn't predictions. It wasn't midseason. Report uh-huh. cards. It was those two episodes. We did two episodes and they yeah. were double anything else. So regardless of what's happening yeah. on the track, there's still stuff for people to <laughs> to consume. And it's also funny that you mentioned that comment about spraying water on the track. I don't know if you know this, but former F1 chief Bernie Eccleston had once suggested that, that he wanted sprinklers at tracks to wet. <laughs> so you're there, which kind of leads my, to my next question that let's say, let's say mm-hmm. we expect some max domination over the next couple of years. Totally fair. Um, I love where you're going with, hey, we don't want to manufacture drama. But if you were to replace F1 CEO Stefano Domenicali, what kind of things would you do to continue to spur interest and growth in the championship? Yeah, I mean, specifically for, you know, if, if we're trying to sort of maintain a US audience, I think there are a few things that you know, he could potentially consider, or I guess I could in this scenario. Um, <laughs> I, I think, you know, it's it's obviously really fun to have three U.S. races this year for the first time and very much looking forward to what happens in Austin in the coming race. Very, very much looking forward to our first uh, Las Vegas adventure. I think it's going to be nuts. Um, but I might suggest making uh, one of the races more of a rotating race. Um Miami is great fun. Vegas is going to be a spectacle, but those two, I feel like have sort of similar atmospheres. And I would love to see another race that has more of an Austin like atmosphere and maybe doing a race that tours through some more historic U S tracks or historic racing areas around the country could be really interesting. Whether that's going back to Indianapolis once in a while, doing like a Watkins Glen situation in New York, maybe, you know, we just kind of do those on a, an alternate basis or something like that, I think could be really fun. And, and to just like kind of embrace the racing history that we have in the U.S. and to latch on to that a little bit more, I, I like I I feel like the the atmosphere in Austin is always so much fun, and I would love to see more of that come through in U.S. races. Um, 
My next suggestion would be to consider the Andretti vid. And I know that that's, <laughs> that's maybe a bit of a, a bit of a flyer and a bit of a, a wish at this point in time. Um, and I mean this less from an Andretti specific point of view and more that another team on the grid means more drama, means more opportunities for drivers, more people can have a favorite driver and follow, you know, people coming up from F2, people switching teams, you know, maybe we get another sort of like fun, silly season event, unlike this year where there really wasn't much driver movement in any direction. Um, and I think trying out more alternate broadcasts could be really fun. I know ESPN was trying to do this a bit with Daniel Ricardo before he got pulled back into the Red Bull ecosystem, but, um, you know, putting familiar faces on the broadcasts could be very fun, even if it's just sort of in a, a one-off or two-off capacity, giving people a little bit more of a an edge in that way, I think could be interesting. I love that. And I absolutely adore it. I've never heard that before, that concept of rotating one of the races through some other traditional races like Watkins Glen or Indianapolis or goodness gracious. And I know logistically might be difficult, but let's go to California, go to Laguna Seca because sure. that's, that's phenomenal. And it creates this like it creates, I would say, stimulation because you're going to somewhere new and different every year. And I also love your point too about Austin. And if if you haven't had the opportunity listening at home to go to an F1 race, that the the experience and the atmosphere from race to race and track to track is very different. And from my perspective, Austin is as close to a traditional European race as you'll find outside of Europe that you you basically mm. walk in and it's like a carnival slash festival slash sporting <laughs> event. It's just, it's amazing. But yeah. once you get through those gates, uh, it's basically a, a free-for-all. And I think a lot of these newer events, it's, and I, I haven't been to Miami, but I think it's a lot more uh, static. It's a lot more concrete it's it's a lot more curated it's a lot more clean mm -hmm. and orderly it's less festival like if that makes sense to you sure and mm -hmm. and i think yeah. austin does a really good job of capturing the magic that are these traditional races so i love all of those ideas and on the andretti one by the way so for people listening at home you know i was very negative about andretti going back a year and a half and now i've become very pro Andretti. And one of the reasons selfishly is we have 10 teams and 20 drivers to talk about, and we got to publish like 50 freaking podcasts a year. Sometimes <laughs> we run out of things to talk about, but you're right. Like if you have an right. 11th team, it's another team to talk about and it's two more drivers mm -hmm. and it creates more opportunity. So as you know, a couple of weeks ago, the FIA effectively rubber stamped the Andretti bid to join F1 as that 11th team, which all of us want. But there's a ton of opposition at the commercial side yeah. of the sport and amongst the teams. Why do you think there's so much opposition when it just it seems so logical to have a proudly American team with a U.S. manufacturing General Motors behind it? Yeah, it, it seems like there's a couple of reasons, chief among them maybe being money, um, which which makes yeah. all of these yeah, yeah, leagues yeah, yeah, and all of yeah. these <laughs> all these sports go around. So I, in some ways, I get it. Um, I know the sort of initial sticking point is that the entrance fee that the FIA or F1 has come up with um, in their past uh, bargaining bargaining realms was not enough at this point, or at least that's what Toto Wolf has said. And other, other team principals have said recently that, you know, for them to be splitting their profits from 10 ways to 11 ways, the amount of money that they're losing is not going to be matched by whatever the entrance fee is for this team. So I think that right now they're sort of trying to figure out whether they can 
charge more money and make that maybe a little bit more of a an even even split there to get to get them on board. But I also think some of it is um, kind of a natural resistance to change. Nobody wants a bloated league where some teams can't keep up. And we see this in North American sports too. That's why it's so hard to add a team to the NBA. The NFL hasn't had a new one in quite some time. Um, I know the NHL has expanded a little bit recently, but they're really the only league that has done so in the recent past. Um, and those teams have had to pay a lot of money to join. So nobody wants, you know, six or seven teams who are just lagging behind all of the rest in terms of resources and spending and production. Like that's not fun for anyone either to just have a bunch of other Haas teams on, on the, much <laughs> as I love them. I mean, I'm not trying to diss Haas, but um, I think the thing that's really kind of surprised me more is the resistance from some drivers. And I've seen, you know, sort of Lewis Hamilton has talked about this in recent weeks. I would think that they would want more opportunities for more drivers on the grid, especially with all of the turnover that we see in the sport from that perspective. But I think that's the only part of it that's really shocked me. I, I sort of expect team principals to always be wary of the money. You know, that's an interesting point as well. And I think I was very disappointed about this. Qatar Doha was the first race subsequent to the announcement from the FIA that they effectively approved the Andretti bid. And I was super mm -hmm. eager to hear what the drivers were going to say. And I, I totally agree with you that you would think the drivers and the Grand Prix Drivers Association would be pro a new team because just like sure. the players union in sports over here in North America, like expansion for them is a huge win. More, yeah, more, more job spots. opportunities. Exactly. Yeah. So when these drivers were coming out and like George Russell had made a comment that I, I can't remember what it was, but he made a comment that I thought was really, really negative towards uh, the Andretti bid. And it was funny too, because Lewis originally was very, very pro. And then he walked back those comments and I can, I just imagine Total Wolf sitting down, George Russell and Lewis Hamilton <laughs> saying, here's the talking points. Here's what you can uh -huh. and can't say, because it, it doesn't, it doesn't benefit the drivers to to be negative towards uh, another team. Now you're sitting in the U.S., maybe not necessarily in the heartland of motorsports, which might be Texas and California and the East Coast, where NASCAR is, of course, big. But certainly, you're on the pulse of, of Formula One. Why do you think? Sorry, what do you think a real? And I say real, and I fully mean to discredit and do a disservice to Haas, but. <laughs> What do you think a real American F1 could do for the sport in the U.S.? You alluded a couple of minutes ago to the fact that, hey, here's some things we could do to continue to simulate growth in the U.S. An American team would be one of them. What do you think Andretti could do specifically? Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, I, I think what's been so interesting about the Andretti bit is that he seems very committed to it being an American team. And that's in a number of respects with, you know, him partnering with Cadillac as sort of the engine supplier. He has a big interest in bringing on American drivers, which I think, um, you know, we've seen the the Logan Sargent experiment uh, not not quite go according to plan <laughs> this season, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, there's there's a few other names out there, Colton Herta and some other some other options who may be uh, a little bit more polished and may have some, you know, some something else to bring to the Formula One table than what we've seen from Logan so far this year. But he does really seem to want it to be in a, a fully American enterprise, which is interesting and could be something that I see American fans latching on to. Granted, if they come through and the production is more of a Haas level of production, I don't really think that's going to change very much. But <laughs> if he is able to be at least somewhat competitive, you know, whether it's in the midfield or if he sort of shocks the world and and uh, can get can get to a higher level and compete with a, a Red Bull or wherever, whenever um, 
that bid would come through, I think would be really, really fascinating. But I think that's sort of where his approach is differing from Haas, where Haas's headquarters may be in the U.S., but you know, n- none of the rest of their enterprise is really American-focused, which, which is fine. I don't think that's totally what they were aiming for anyway, but it seems like that is really, really the intent for Michael Andretti. What has been your biggest surprise at this point in the season? So we're sitting here. It is October 11th. Both the championships have been decided. But what has been your biggest, what has been the biggest surprise for you in the F1 season so far? I think for me, and this may be kind of surprising because they've really fallen off across the second half of the year, but it's still Aston Martin to me and still specifically what Fernando Alonso was able to do across the front half of the year. I think I, and I'm, I'm going to just blanket this and say that I think everyone in the formula one space was shocked by what they were able to do coming into this season to see that car. That was, I don't know if they were fully last on the grid last year or very, very low in the standings and in their performance come through and consistently podium and to see what Fernando Alonso has been able to pull off, you know, in his, his mid to late thirties is truly incredible. And I, I am very excited to see what they can pull off across this off season and going into next year. Um, you know, they haven't been able to sort of match the back half of production in terms of car developments, which makes sense considering all of the resources that, that they poured into last off season. But I'm cautiously optimistic that at least we'll get some more fun Fernando Alonso races, which is all I'm really looking for. And um, I don't know totally what's going on with Lance Stroll at this point in time, but as long as we get some fun Fernando, that's, uh, that's my entire goal. Yeah, I I would completely agree. And it was, pretty clear pretty early on. And I think there was a little bit of debate early on about, hey, could Sergio stay in, hang in this championship battle? And it became yeah. pretty clear pretty quickly that that wasn't going to happen. But I totally agree that through the first half of the season, I was tuning in specifically to see what Fernando Alonso was going to do with that car. Like, totally tuning in. And I think I'm probably not alone. And it's funny because I've shared this on the air before. I've watched F1 for a while. I've never been a Fernando Alonso fan. I, I hated the way things fell apart at McLaren in 08. I hated the way that he treated McLaren and Honda when they were together. I was happy when he exited the sport. I was I was almost remorseful when he came back, but I found myself cheering for him like every single weekend. And just like <laughs> from a personality perspective, he seems to have, have softened and he just seems more charismatic. So I, I've loved that. And I think the other fortunate thing is that as the AMR23 that that Aston Martin has dropped off the face, kind of cratered from a performance perspective, and there's a lot of reasons, and we can make kind of draw some conclusions to what happened. McLaren seems to have picked up. So just as Aston Martin cratered, at, McLaren came into the picture, and of course you saw we saw Oscar Piastri score that sprint race. When by the way, I still don't know how to conceptualize that in my head. Like a Grand Prix win is a Grand Prix win. I don't know what a sprint race win means, like historically in my head. Like, have you made sense of that yet? Like what that means? No, no, really, really haven't. Um, And and it's hard too, because, you know, you see comments from Lando after when he's sort of lamenting like, oh, Oscar got his first win before (laughs) I did. And it's like, yeah, but not really. Like, and this is not to take anything away from his performance because, because what he did was exceptional. He beat Max Verstappen in the Red Bull. So that's, that's huge. And I think to win a sprint race, you know, you still have to really do well in qualifying and have your team pick the right strategy, which it seems like they did on the medium tires and have to have patience while a George Russell comes back to the field and all of those things. So it is still definitely an impressive feat, but 
it is not a Grand Prix win in my mind. And, totally. and I don't, totally. it, I don't totally know where it squares for me just yet, but yeah, I, I was happy for him certainly, but yeah, a kind of a weird, weird finish. For sure. For sure. And you know, he's got two podium finishes in his last two Grand Prix, like actual Grand Prix, which is amazing. And yeah. it's, it's funny too, because a couple of years ago when F1 introduced the concept of the sprint, I remember Daniel Ricciardo making a comment that his biggest concern was that the sprint race would take away from the Grand Prix. And in my perspective, that totally hasn't happened. That the sprint race is this thing. We haven't really kind of decided what it means, historically speaking, but I don't think it's diminished the Grand Prix in any way. Do you? No, I don't. I, I view them totally a separate entities. And I think some of that has to do with, you know, they have separate qualifying now they have, it, it really is sort of its whole little Saturday deal where like, totally. if, if, yeah, you, yeah, totally. if you were to remove Saturday from the Grand Prix weekend, like everything else is still the same. You're really just taking away some practices. So from, from my perspective, I, th I think it's fun to do a few times a year. I don't know that I want to see more than six sprint races. Um, and I think they also have an opportunity to pick some slightly different tracks than what they have chosen so far. Like, yeah, I, I love, you know, when they have the Brazil sprint race and things like that, but there are a couple tracks that they've chosen that I think maybe we could switch it up a little bit for next year. But um, no, I don't, I don't think it's detracted for me in any way. MotoGP obviously has been trying to borrow heavily from some of the successful formula that F1's employed the last couple of years, and they went crazy with sprint races this year. They have a sprint race every single weekend, and I can tell Oof. you as a fan, it is exhausting. Like, I, it, it's too much content. It's just it's too, too much. much. It's too much. Oh, yeah. What driver... And or team. So obviously, I think Aston Martin's been a wonderful surprise and we've all cheered for Fernando. But what driver or team has left you most disappointed coming into coming into this point in the season? Yeah, this one's really hard for me to say because it really pains me to be mean to this person and, and to criticize this person. But it's Sergio Perez for me, um, especially given the way that he started this season, how dominant he was on the street circuits, how much he seemed to be pushing Max Verstappen. You go into Miami, everything seems to be pointing his direction. And, and this is not to say that I expected him to come away with the, the ultimate championship win or anything like that, but I, I expected him to push Max a lot harder than he has over the last few months. And I don't know what it was about that Miami race, if it was just seeing Max clear through the field as quickly as he did and then pass Sergio as quickly as he did in the same car, even though Checo had the lead. Uh, I don't know if it was like de demoralizing for him or, or, or if a car setup has changed or something else, but um, it's, it's been downright painful to watch him in qualifying and in races lately. And he's gotten into some scraps that he should never have been in because he should have never been back in the midfield anyway. With a car like that, you should be in the top five at a minimum, you would think most every race. And that has just not been the case. I it's, it's been a real bummer because I'm a Sergio Perez fan, fan. And I think he's one of the more fun drivers to watch. Like even going back to 2021, the way that he was able to hold Lewis up in Abu Dhabi and, you know, contribute to that championship. I fully expected him to be a factor at the very least over the next couple of years. And yeah, it, it's fallen off so fast. It's it's so hard. <laughs> you make such an astute observation as well that one of the biggest struggles with him and that, that point you make about he's in battles he shouldn't be in. Like we saw with Lance Stroll this last weekend that one of the things that is so painful and, and I agree with you that that's the right word because I think we all like him. Like I think generally like the F1 community really likes Sergio Perez, but 
his lack of qualifying pace puts him in a position where suddenly he's in the midfield. And to your point, he should never be in that position. Like he should be at the front in clean air, but he, he makes life so much more difficult for him. And, you know, we're sitting here and this kind of tees up the final question that I have for you, which is, Hey, does Sergio drive for Red Bull next year? He's under contract. He's under contract. But if you listen to Helmut Marco and Christian Horner, it seems like by the day it's becoming less and less likely. And of course that team has basically three drivers available, Ricardo, Yuki, Liam. Right. Does he drive for Red Bull next year? And based on his current form, do you think he should? If you'd asked me maybe two months ago, I would have said he will probably be in the Red Bull next year. And that's just because even though he was struggling, they seemed a little bit willing to help him work through. The results weren't great, but they weren't horribly horrendous and you're still winning the the constructors championship and you know that's sort of the ultimate goal I guess they also you know very clearly have Max as a number one driver so I don't think they're interested in going out and trying to get somebody who's gonna completely upend that balance but over the last few weeks I if if this keeps up I don't see how he's in that second seat next year they are a ruthless team and we've seen that time and time again with how they've you know dealt with an Alex Albon, Pierre Gasly, some of Max's other teammates through the years. They are not shy about making a change when they don't think they're getting the most out of the car and Checo for sure at this point is not getting the most out of that car. So I would not be shocked if they try to bring you know Daniel Ricardo back up to the Red Bull seat. I, I don't foresee them doing like a, a Liam Lawson thing in the Red Bull anytime soon. Um, maybe they they take a flyer and move Yuki up, which I think would be incredibly fun. But I don't know if they totally trust him with with that machinery yet. At this point. <laughs> I totally but agree. They, like you said, they have a, a ton of options, and I would be surprised if they are not considering all of them at this point. Reddit user Steeler Fever 97 posted on Reddit a couple of days ago. He wrote the gap between Max and Sergio uh, in the driver's championship in terms of points. The gap between Max and Sergio is bigger than the gap between P2 and P12, 211 and 180 <laughs> points respectively. Ooh. And it's, it's funny too, because Max is actually making things more difficult because, and again, another stat here from Reddit user, outlandishness pure too. Max has only dropped 41 points since the season began. So he's only left 8.7% of available points on the board. So he's actually making things more difficult because he doesn't make a mistake and he doesn't go into the wall and right. he, doesn't, he doesn't cough up any points. So that gap just keeps growing and growing. And to your point, it's been really tough to watch. It's been really tough to watch Sergio recently because there's been so many uh, unforced errors if you will, to kind of borrow a uh, a tennis term, like so many unforced errors, but he's so charismatic. But I, I would think, and I, I agree with you that two months ago, like, look, you know what? He's under contract. They're committed to the money. He's been good enough. They're going to win the constructor's title. But I, I think at this point, I, I think Red Bull are probably being more pragmatic to say, look, if he competes like this next year and a Mercedes takes a step or a Ferrari takes a step or a McLaren takes a step, there's no guarantee he will win that constructor's title. And the thing I've heard and I don't know this for sure, but uh, apparently Daniel spent an awful lot of time at Milton Keynes in the Red Bull Sim this year, and they've been very impressed mm. with what they've seen, which is one of the reasons that they were so happy to give him that Alpha Tauri drive earlier 
this year. Oh my goodness. Megan, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Before I let you go, uh, maybe share some of the things that you're working on and where can our listeners kind of check out your content, check out your social media? Yeah. Um, you can find me every week or, you know, most weeks on the ringer F one show. You can find that on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. Um, you can find me on Twitter or I guess it's called X now, apparently, if, if that's what we're doing. Um, my handle is at Meg Schuster. I'm always happy to interact with uh, F1 folks there. Uh, otherwise, yeah, you can find me on TheRinger.com, occasionally writing about, you know, pop culture rankings or editing NFL or writing about golf or hockey or who knows what. So yeah, you can find me lots of places. Megan, thank you so, so much to everybody listening at home. If you like what we do here, you know what to do. Jump on Spotify and give us a rating. If you listen on Apple, if you can give us a rating and a review, you know that means the world to both of us. We'll be back in a couple of days with our weekly news show. Hope you enjoyed our special edition podcast with Megan Schuster from The Ringer. We'll speak to you all soon. Bye for now. I feel like a locomotive sipping, drinking Arizona Mixtape just around the corner, did a lot in California Can't wait to drop this on you Yeah, they gon' have fun with that Smash like song, and my songs gon' break through like a running back